it's Jeremy Kirkland, and you're listening to Blamo. Another season, another episode of the pod. You know, it's funny because we do these these seasons, and um, I don't even know why we do it. It really just kind of helps break up the amount of recording that we need to do. Let's me uh, let's me catch my breath a little bit. But uh, last season, big season, a lot, a lot of new listeners. So I do want to call out if you're new here. We have hundreds of episodes of maybe some of your favorite folks, maybe some of your soon-to-be favorite folks. I don't know. We got new episodes coming, but there's a lot of good old episodes, and I shouldn't have even said old. There's a lot of good previous episodes, right? Is that, is that even a thing? Whatever. Are you all baking out there? It's hot as hell. It's just so hot. I'm a summer guy, but uh, you know I like it, but come July, August, I'm done. I, I get all cranky. I get whiny. I can't handle the heat. Can't handle it. Can't handle the heat or the humidity, but I just start walking around and I'm just mumbling profanity under my breath. I'm like like Joe Pesci in Home Alone. Like I'm just friggin' jiggered of what you know. It's I can't handle it. I'm I'm running. I am doing a lot of running. You know, trying to maintain some some form of shape or body. Uh, but I can only run at like six or seven a.m., which is when I'd rather be sleeping. And now the air quality is getting bad. I mean, are we all just dying? I don't know. I promise I'm not being pessimistic. Pessi- I don't even know how to talk. I promise I'm not being pessimistic, but maybe I am. I don't know. This summer, though, um, I've really been, tr- been, you know, I've been trying to go in on a nice little morning routine, but a breakfast routine. Like I make my coffee and my hard-boiled eggs, a little bit of fruit, and I just sit there. I sit there at the kitchen table, and I'm eating it, just sitting there staring off into space like an idiot. No news, no life on the go, just being a breakfast boy. Biggest thing is I put on some music. Think about my life. I drink my coffee, you know, my little pour over that I'm making. But uh, lately, I've been listening to a lot of instrumental music. Mostly my guest this week. You like that transition? <laughs> Me too. Um, my guest this week, Hayden Pedigo. So for some folks, this guy's a bit of a head scratcher. He's a virtuoso guitarist. I mean, just phenomenal, incredible guitarist playing in bizarro tunings that you don't even know what they are. I don't either. Uh, he's an amazing songwriter, and he's from the Texas Panhandle. But if you see his his music videos or his pictures on social media, you think he's Eric Andre or Tim and Eric or Tom Green or something along those lines. Like, but his style is also incredible. His guitar playing, like his clothing style, I'm I'm serious. But like his guitar playing and his writing is even more so. He just released this new album, "The Happiest Times I Ever Ignored," on uh, Mexican Summer, great label by the way. And it's been on repeat in my house ever since. It's, it's so good. I even play it to my son. He's all into it. Uh, yeah, we're just sitting there listening to Hayden Pedigo. But uh, Hayden came on the pod this week. We discussed growing up in the Texas panhandle, the appeal of mundane normalcy, his love of Tom Green. See, there was a connection there. Sick guitar riffs, getting fits off in cowboy clothes, and his new album, The Happiest Times I Ever Ignored. New season, new pod. Let's go. Talk to me about your wall, man. There's a lot going on back there. Yeah, a lot, a lot of thrift store stuff. <laughs> is that is that the uh, is that the the vibe for most of, most of your things? I feel like you 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 embody like the hometown hero of a character on Pete and Pete. I mean, like on Pete and Pete, the hometown hero, not Artie, right? No, like, not Artie. I think Artie might have had some other stuff going on. Yeah, that that or, might have been a pejorative thing to say. <laughs> yeah, Artie might have been on a list. I feel like something was up. No, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. 
I mean, uh, I, I like that comparison. That's one of my favorite TV shows ever. Really? Yeah, I love that show. I watched it so much as a kid. Really, really incredible show. Great music too. Right? Yeah, music's incredible. I do, do you have any kids? I do not, no. Okay, well, I, ever since, you know, I have two kids. And ever since I've gotten, like, more into seeing, like, the, the programming that they watch, I'm like, did I, was I in the golden age of kids' TV? And I, Oh, yeah, big time. Yeah, right? You look at those shows, and they really, really, really hold up. Especially now, like, I find myself following more of these, like, social media accounts that are really, like, embracing this, I don't know, like... 90s aesthetic or whatever or i don't know but it 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 hits it hits good but yeah your stuff and i i think maybe it's because of the videos that you do but it the the juxtaposition of hayden pedigo music and hayden pedigo the individual with the like costumes and the the art and stuff to it what kind of walk me through some of this stuff is this a texas thing um i mean (laughs) I don't know. I don't know if it's a Texas thing. I mean, I feel like finally with my music, the the weird comedy aesthetic and the music are finally coming together in a way that makes sense because I feel like that was always kind of the goal. I've been releasing music for 10 years now. I started when I was 18 when I first put out um, music, but it took a long time to like, I felt like those things were completely separate and it took a long time to figure out how does this hyper sincere acoustic guitar music go with really absurd comical visuals and a sense of humor. And I feel like it was fine tuning it in a way that made sense to people because I think acoustic guitar music tends to be really stuffy and it can get kind of boring with the image and aesthetic that goes with that kind of music. Um, Well, like what's an example of like stuffiness of acoustic guitar music? Well, I mean, it's just like PR photos of like wearing a blazer sitting in the woods holding a guitar. And usually these are your videos, the wearing that the. Wearing a blazer and sitting in the woods. But I think you do it very, I mean, you do it very differently. Not not to call out the irony of it, but like. Well, yeah, I mean, like the video I just put up is um, a slight parody of a Will, uh, Will Ackerman video on Wyndham Hill, where he was mm-hmm. sitting on a truck bed with his foot up on a log. Yeah. Um, and I was kind of just pointing out the sense of humor in that video. Like there's something kind of comical about this guy in a field sitting in the back of a truck playing this with his foot up on a log. Is It's like very <laughs> unnatural, but under the Wyndham Hill guise of being very natural. Right. Um, so that that's the thing. So when I say acoustic guitar music can be kind of stuffy, for the most part, I think it is because I don't know if I read any interview of guitar players, that's usually about I play guitar and then that's what they talk about. And it's just kind of like, uh, like, that's cool. You play guitar, but it's just uh, I sometimes I just don't really want to read about people playing guitar. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's. Are you talking old stuff where it was like like Chet Atkins and stuff where like people had like empty personalities? I mean, that's still now. I mean, that's kind of is the it? common theme Damn. with a lot of solo guitar music is like, like I said, your PR photo will be wearing a blazer sitting by a tree, um, looking stoic. And it's very serious. It's just kind of like this is serious guitar music. And that's kind of what it is. And that wasn't really ever my thing. And also, I never really felt much like a guitar player. Um, so I guess I tried to not identify as a guitar player it just seems like a trap to be a guitar player so i kind of tried to do other things that i thought were interesting and i i mean i once said to somebody that i said i approached the guitar like harmony corinne and i approach comedy like john fahey um it's just like it's like different approaches where you know i i feel like i take a lot from harmony corinne and his ethos but i don't make films but i take a lot from the way he works and then apply it to what i do 
And I mean, I can even look at what John Fahey did. And I think he's, it's interesting how he's like the exception where if you look back on a lot of his albums, the liner notes were just absolutely unhinged. It's really like proto shit posting in a gatefold of an album, which I really respect. It's like he was taking a dump on like the, the hyper self-important liner notes and he was just trolling in them. And I thought that was really unique for the time because who was doing that? You know, it's just like, you could kind of tell he was just kind of like, whatever, just, I want to put something dumb. Yeah. I think there's, there's a comedy level to your music that is really, really surprising because like, I, so, you know, for me, I had first heard of your stuff, like many people with the Amarillo city council stuff. And I thought you were like a Tim and Eric dude. And then obviously you do this interview with Tim Heidecker with the talk house homies, which, which is a great, great interview by the way. But, um, then I was like, well, then I listen to your music and like, I'm, I'm like a, a Berkeley kid dropout. And so like, I'm like, dude, this guy rips. Like, this is not a fake guitar player or someone who's like, oh, but my real thing is making, you know, videos or something. Yeah. And I think that was some of the most, I mean, like you're, I don't know, like some of these bizarre tunings and stuff that you're doing, like the music is really, really, really good. Thank like you. that I find myself like going and just like putting it on over stuff. And I'm a guy who, yeah, like I used to listen to just a ton of, um, I mean, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, and my dad was from um, Victoria, Texas. And so, and he was, you know, a preacher's, uh, my, my dad was a preacher. And so like, there's a weird level of like gospel, you know, I don't know, like, like 80s, 90s Baptist, like guitaring in there that mm-hmm. just like really, really hits me. But so like when I listen to your stuff, like it's, it's a very heavy experience. And then I started like watching all these other videos and I'm just like, holy shit, like the, the juxtaposition of this is like mind blowing yeah. across. <laughs> well, I, for one, thank you. I'm really glad you enjoy the music because that's, that's the best feeling is I want people to take the music seriously and feel yeah. the emotion and heaviness in it. And the thing is, is like, I feel like the more I think about what I'm trying to do is like, it's almost getting into this point of like post irony guitar music because the music is very sincere. There's no sarcasm in the music at all. Right. Um, okay. And, and I feel sometimes that like my music a- approaches like intense sincerity to the point of nearly corny with some of the melodies I do. Like, I, I feel like I'm more willing to be corny with be- with being hyper sentimental in the music. Which there's always a risk to that. When you're hyper sentimental, it can be really corny and sugary. But I'm willing to go that far. And then when you see the album cover and the videos, which are very absurd and goofy, I think it can give people a little bit of whiplash of like, this music is very sincere, hyper sincere. But this album artwork is disturbing and kind of ridiculous. <laughs> so what's going on here? So I, I mean, it's kind of like... A, uh, it's turning a little bit into like post ironic guitar music where even for me, I'm trying to figure out, I'm still trying to figure out what it is exactly. I'm, I'm like trying to decode what's going on a little bit, just being like completely honest about it. It's, it's, uh, um, it's kind of a disaster in a way. Well, let's go down these two roads. So like the comedy almost like all, I don't know, like the, the kiss makeup and the chain mail and stuff. Where, where did, where did these, where did this stuff come from? Like, where did you first get into these things? Well, I think like a lot of goofy photos I would take with like corpse paint and chain mail and weird outfits. It kind of came about from living the Texas panhandle, Amarillo and Lubbock, Texas and places like that. And 
they kind of have this mundane normalcy to them. Like they're hyper normal, like and so so insanely hyper normal. And I kind of realized it was a great backdrop to put really ridiculous things over. And it really amplified both. Like recently I took a photo in court paint in front of a realtor billboard in Amarillo. Oh, yeah, was yeah like I saw that shit. All of these women that are like selling sunset type realtors. And to me, I was like, that alone is really funny. Like, that's really weird. But in a way, it's almost like hyper normal insanity. Like, it's so wild, but it's also so insanely normal. It's like hard to explain it. But then I felt like when I put myself over it, it adds another layer of of just insanity. So that's where I started doing all these weird photos is this place is so normal and made it easier to do strange things. And they felt stranger, you know, because. If I were to do stuff like this in L.A., New York, Austin, I don't know. It, it, it probably like it probably be kind of dumb because it would just be like, oh, some guy acting weird in L.A. <laughs> like, what's well, did, like, where did you first get into this? Did you were you like really into Monty Python when you were younger or? No, I mean, honestly, the stuff I was really into was honestly uh, Tom Green and Harmony Kareen were the two people. Tom Green. Yeah. Tom, oh, yeah. I Tom Green's that. a Tom Green is a like avant garde comedy legend. And I've talked about it so much to people that Tom Green really, really, really is the true definition of a visionary, really visionary comedian, really outsider art. I think a lot of his early experiments with the Tom Green show and public access TV are truly to me like put it in a MoMA, like take Chris Burden out of the MoMA and replace him with Tom Green. Like that's, Whoa, that's, that's a hot take. It is. I'm saying like, I'm, <laughs> I think I made this art curator mad once. Cause I said, I think Tom Green's infinitely better than Chris Burden. And I was being slightly like jokey and inflammatory. But if you go back and see the experiments Tom Green was doing, um, they're very bold. They're very wild and brave. Um, but they're very sharp. And at the time, he was viewed as like the butt of comedy. But over time, I think if you go back and look, it's like, oh, wow, this guy was supremely sharp and had an eye for like a truly artistic aesthetic. If you see his editing and the way the videos look and the way yeah. he approaches comedy, because people would get furious at him and those old prank clips. But if you watch them, he's like not an ad. Like he's like not like truly antagonistic. He's like Canadian and very polite. But there's mm-hmm. something that just irked people about him. And I found that really brilliant that he could just ask people, where are you going? And yeah. someone would flip out on him. And, and I just think he had such a unique approach. I think he was really ahead of his time. And he influenced me um, so much in my work. Getting to meet him was a huge deal for me because I got to oh, pick, well, pick his Wait, wait, wait. Talk to me about that. How did you meet Tom Green? So I actually met him. Um, so... I first talked to him when I was running for city council, when I was in L.A. for the talk house interview with Tim Heidecker. That was the first time I'd ever met Tim Heidecker. And then the next day I told the documentary production company um, they were making the doc. I was like, I want to meet Tom Green somehow. And they're like, oh, we'll do some digging and see what we can find. And I ended up getting a call from Tom Green's uh, manager who... um, I believe is Rob Schneider's. Well, this this was a long time. Ago. I don't know if this still is manager, but at the time, I believe Tom Green's manager was Rob Schneider's brother. Oh, and, okay. And I was talking that, to that Rob Schneider's <laughs> brother, who told me he had run for city council in his twenties. So me and Rob Schneider's brother had a long talk about this, and then eventually he was like, "Oh, okay, I'll pass your number along to Tom." And then Tom called me, and he was like, "Hey, I'm really far from where you're at in L.A. because I was like in Venice, so we were." I might as well have been like in another state or something. So we didn't get to meet in person, but I talked to him a long time on the phone, which started a correspondence with him where me and him would talk on the phone. I eventually got to meet him in person at a stand-up show he did in Texas. We finally got to meet um, in person. 
Um, but he's genuinely one of the nicest people I've ever met. He's uh, very humble about his work. I could tell it was making him a little uncomfortable that I was like gushing about his influence and what he's done. But I just felt it was important to let him know, all right, Tom, you were so ahead of everybody. And it needs to be said because I feel like he still hasn't gotten his credit for it. Because I do think Tim and Eric are very influential on Internet humor. I think they were insanely yeah. influential. But sometimes I feel like Tom Green isn't talked about in the same way as Tim and Eric when I feel like he absolutely should be talked about in the same way Tim and Eric are in terms oh, of. Oh, yeah, you're absolutely right. In terms of influence on outsider comedy. Because, I mean, people like Eric Andre have said like Tom Green was a huge influence, which I can definitely see the parallels between the Eric Andre show and the Tom Green show with him having like the whole late night looking set. Yeah. Um, but Tom Green just had such an influence on what I do. And then bring in Harmony Kareen, who's uh, aesthetic and the way he approaches making art, almost like a non-artist. I mean, Harmony Kareen is like very open with like, uh, like he, there's a famous quote where the head of the studio that was going to fund Gummo basically said, I'll fund the movie, but you just can't say it's art. And Harmony was like, oh, yeah, no, this is not art. Like, this is not art. And <laughs> this movie is not art. And I really appreciated that where it's just kind of no, like this, this isn't art. And I think Tom Green did the same thing. I don't think he viewed what he did as art, but now we all view Harmony Green's work as art. Now I view Tom Green's work as art. You know, I just think they have a really unique eye that, that makes them stand out from everybody. So that's what I try to do in my work. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it really shows. And I'm glad you mentioned Eric Andre stuff too, because just the whole adult swim aesthetic. And I think the biggest thing too is, a lot of those guys, you know, Eric Andre is an incredible musician. I actually yeah. think he's he's a Berkeley jazz guy. Yeah, stand up uh, bass. bass. Yeah, stand up bass, which is like, I mean, that's that's heavy hitter stuff. And Tom Green was a rapper, like he had oh, a shit. hit. Like <laughs> the uh, like, I need a, I can't remember the name of the group he was in, but as a teenager, he was in a rap group in Canada that had a hit. Like they they were a legitimate Beastie Boys style rap group. So it wasn't like a little project. Oh. That's what's interesting about Tom is um, he had a fairly successful career in rap. And then he was also really good at skating. And the only reason he didn't pursue skating is because of an injury. Like Tom Green can skate. Did I lose you? Oh, I think we lost connection. Yeah, kicked off. I need to see if he gets back on there. What what a way to drop out as as you're 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 making the, the hot take of of Tom Green's music career, the unappreciated music career, and my yeah. flipping internet dies. Um, <laughs> see, man, this is this is this is where your your multi dimensional uh, government action involvement could come in and fix local broadband for all. Um, That's the priority. That's the goal. Is well, actually, is is that like is is the the government you know uh, local democratic representation is that still a plan or a desire um not right now no i mean uh, i always say if people watch the documentary on my city council run they'll see it kicked my ass i mean it's brutal it is not something you do for fun which i didn't do it for fun yeah it started off as a joke but then i went into it seriously and it is very 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 hard work uphill battle and the odds are completely against you um so it's just a complete mess very soul crushing yeah well glad you kind of made it out on the other side but i I will say the the i mean at least for like having people like figure you out and i think more having people get inspired by what you were doing i know you, you had referenced people coming up to you and actually starting to ask you more questions about the logistics of local 
politics and what that looks like. So, I mean, maybe you're the spark that that the town needed. I hope so. I mean, that's all I can hope, really. Are you a lifer for Amarillo? Um, I mean, I don't know if I'll always live in Amarillo, but it's I will always find Amarillo endlessly intriguing. And I've found a lot of inspiration from Amarillo. So I'm a lifer in that sense. Like, I know a lot of people that leave Amarillo and they're like, I hate that place. It's the worst place on earth. And I've never really been that way. I don't really view Amarillo in that light. Yeah, I mean, I I lived in St. Louis when I was younger and was trying to do music here. It was basically my whole life and then moved to New York and lived in New York for 16, 17 years and then moved back during COVID. Mm-hmm. And it's weird the appreciation you get for where you're from. Because like, I feel like when you're in it, you know, especially I was younger, I was 18 when I left. I hated this place. I hated St. Yeah. Louis. I was like, there's no good music. There's no good scene. And now it's funny. The first thing I tell people is like, man, St. Louis is great. Like I got Tom York coming in my backyard in a, in a you know, in a month and it's going to be, yeah. you know, and, and all of a sudden I'm like preaching on the other side. Like, did you, uh, did you ever really like, were you like ever wrestling with, with where you were from? Oh, for sure. And I mean, I think the most difficult thing is even still to this day, people in Amarillo aren't really a fan of my music. It just doesn't register here. What, what is the I music go, in Amarillo that people are into? Just like everything um, else? Uh, probably, yeah. I mean, in terms of what's in, like, there's not a whole lot of bands or local music here. Mm-hmm. Not much of a music scene, anything like that. And I'm not sure what people are listening to in their daily life. Probably a lot of country and things like that. But it's kind of weird. My music just doesn't have a following in Amarillo. If I go to my Spotify and look at my most, like, cities I'm most played in of the hundred, I don't even think Amarillo's on there. But, you know, you can see Paris, but not Amarillo, which is kind of ironic. That's interesting with using something like Spotify to kind of like figure out where you're being listened to. Cause I feel like that's, that's a pretty interesting advantage that a lot of musicians probably didn't have back then. Oh yeah. Yeah. Do you do like your it's tour routing through that? Through They're just like seeing, of, yeah. Seeing where you're, where you're hot. Yes and no. But a lot of the times it's like the most con like New York, LA. Awesome. Like those are all <laughs> up there on my Spotify. So it's just kind of like, yeah, that makes sense. That's easy. Yeah. Um, but I'm only just now starting to tour. I've never really done that before. So this is honestly the first time I've ever really done it. So this is uh figuring it out live, like for the first time. Oh my god. And you you play in like a lot of different tunings too, right? Yes. So how many yeah. axes you gotta bring? Six? So usually three, a six string acoustic, a twelve string acoustic, and an electric. Okay. Um, and usually what I do is I try to make my set list work where it's like the least amount of tunings in between. So if I can like only have to tune one or two strings mm. in between songs, that's better versus having to retune all six. Um, I've been having a lot of nightmares recently um, because I'm going on tier 10 opening for Ginny Lewis. And two nights in a row, I've had nightmares of being on stage with like bad guitars. I don't know my tunings. I don't have tuning <laughs> sheets. And people are getting up and walking out. Two oh. nights in a row, I've been having this dream. Um, so it's uh, it messes with me. It's it's pretty freaky. Do you keep a dream diary? No, I don't want to. I don't want to remember this stuff. <laughs> yeah. I want to forget it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's interesting. I think first off, touring with someone like Jenny Lewis, like you're gonna have a, a good crowd. I think you're gonna have yeah. people that like. It's not like you're going and you're touring with. You know, I've done shows where we would tour with a band that like no one cared that we were there. Like, yeah. I think you're going to have like some nice overlap on that, but 
have you, you know, doing this kind of tour, have, you know, with the music that you have, is there a certain set or like performance that you've been working on? Or are you literally just going to go out there, play your songs? Well, yeah, I have a set. It's mainly like uh, songs from this new record and the songs from the last record I did for Mexican Summer. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was kind of nice. Like two months ago, I went to L.A. and I opened for um, this Japanese folk artist, Ichiko Aoba, I think is how you say her name. Mm. And it was like a packed show. It was sold out. It was like 1,300 people. And it she has the, like the most respectful audience ever. They're just dead quiet great listeners like one like the probably the best audience i've ever played to oh my god but i nearly flipped out on stage because i never really played to that large of an audience and i walked out um i sit in the chair and i look up at 1300 people and they're just dead silent just like looking at me and my hands were super shaky and i started playing but i just closed my eyes and like hung on for dear life Made it through the first song, and then the rest of the set was fantastic. But I- I'm glad I did that show because I'm like, most likely the genius thing is going to be a similar similar type of zone of packed theater type shows. Yeah. And I don't have a band. It's just kind of me on stage, no singing, instrumental guitar. There's, well, I, I know not- you're not doing any singing, but you're not going to, there's no one else backing you no. up or anything? No, just solo guitar. Oh, Microphone man. in front of the sound hole. Like, it's like I struggle with stage fright forever, and I realized like, I'm in the worst music for stage fright. Yeah, I was like, going to say, what were you thinking, in, man? <laughs> I don't know. I guess I never thought I would be performing it. And then now that I'm having to perform it, it's uh, it's quite a challenge. But it's kind of fun. It feels like um, so it feels like skydiving. Like every time I do it, it's just like like absolutely terrifying. But it's fun. Yeah, I mean, it's. I used to watch, like I was like way deep in old Jerry Reed videos on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting to see how some of those guys perform because obviously like Jerry Reed wasn't really singing these songs, you know, and even when it's like Chet and Jerry, like they would go out and they would just like play stuff. But half the show was also like a comedy show. Oh, big time. Yeah, that's but those guys were like true performers, like absolute performers. It's like the other day I was listening to that live album buck owens at oh Carnegie yeah. hall mm-hmm. and it was kind of weird to me because i'm like wow you do not see that style of performing anymore because it's it's interesting how they have like little bits in between yes. the songs right where, uh uh it, it's it, it's just like uh it blew me away just the buck owens thing where him and the band have like little comedy skits in between i was like wow these guys not only are kicking ass as one of like Maybe one of the greatest country bands of all time. And then in between, they're doing like 1950s late night TV stand up jokes with each other, getting like the hugest laughs out of the audience. And they're really pure, just pure comical performers. They're just absolutely incredible. This doesn't sound that far off from what you can do, though, at least for yourself. I mean, because I feel like especially because your whole vibe and aesthetic and everything like, you know, in a good way, like. You look cool. You got you got like the cool hat. You got the cool glasses. <laughs> you know your style's great. You're super talented. So you go out there and play. Like I don't think if you you know all of a sudden start referencing like a Far Side comic, people are gonna <laughs> like start believing. Well, I make jokes on stage. I mean, I joke, but I definitely like Leo Kotke, who's a very famous solo guitarist. Yep. He's very well known for his on stage banter and stories, and he's very masterful and he's also like his stories are very funny leo cocky is a low almost like a lowercase comedian like (laughs) he's not an hour comedian but like his jokes 
his jokes are very funny. And in a weird way, Leo Kaki has a lot in common with like Norm MacDonald style joke telling. If you hear Leo tell stories, they're very long winded stories where you're like, where is this going? And then he'll end with a punchline. Like he'll tell a long winded story about meeting Bob Dylan and then ending with having no recollection of meeting him. Like he just didn't know he had met Bob Dylan and people will die at these stories, but you almost it's, he delivers them in a way where he almost acts like he's not trying to be funny. Yeah. Um, Yeah. There's like a deadpan in there. Yeah. Yeah. But I think cocky is like, I mean, one of my favorite moments ever on a live record is Leo Kotke has a 1973 live album called My Feet Are Smiling, where he's just shredding through this whole live album. The album opens with him playing this very somber slide piece on the 12 string and 30 seconds in, he absolutely screws it up. <laughs> like just bl- and he stops and goes, well, I blew that and just goes into the next song, just skips it and just starts ripping the next song. And the audience dies laughing, but it's like he he doesn't try to cover up the fact that he ruined the song. He just says, well, I blew that and just skips it. It's like, I'm not restarting. Like, I'm just going to go into the next song and just move on. Um, it's just it's such a funny moment. And he's not even trying to be funny. Yeah, that's like stuff that I want more than ever from concerts and and obviously also recordings. I don't know. I feel like maybe it's because so much of music to me feels like sanitized and quantized right right like if we're talking pro tools here where there's no um humanity in some of the music like you know it's it's like i like wait wait, hold on a second okay before you send that dm or text that friend i know what you're thinking you're ready to buy your first serious watch or in other cases maybe your fourth or your fifth but look man it's hard out there it really is from this dealer or that store that wants the purchase history or whatever. I mean, you're just, I, I don't know, you're almost ready to walk away from the whole game. But fear not, my friends. Check out Bezel. Bezel is the trusted marketplace for buying and selling your next luxury watch with expert in-house authentication on every purchase. With over 18,000 watches listed right now, as of the time I'm recording this, from a mix of professional dealers to private sellers, You're just going to find what you're looking for. But wait, wait, I know. You're like, Jeremy, I'm sorry. They don't have that X Rolex or that insane Omega. Well, reach out to them. Bezel has a real team of real people. Just create an account and be connected with a private client advisor, and they will guide you through the entire process every step. Once you decide on your watch, it's overnighted to Bezel HQ, where their in-house team of experts authenticate it, and then it's on your way to you. If anything is amiss, the watch is not listed correctly, whatever it is, they'll let you know, the buyer know, and the offer to refund you or source you a new one at a similar price. (laughs) That's pretty good, right? This has been part of the Bezel ethos since launch. I've even spoke to the founders about it. And now you can make an offer on a watch, buy it outright, or bid it at auction. Bezel is the highest rated watch marketplace out there. Even Trustpilot shows Bezel is 4.9 out of 5 stars with rave reviews. Okay, okay, you're still on the fence? Dig into the Blamo feed yourself and listen to my chat with the Bezel co-founders and, well, see for yourself. But you got this. I believe in you. Visit GetBezel.com and buy and sell your next luxury watch. That's GetBezel.com. GetBezel.com. Hearing a song from like something like in the 70s or whatever, and you're like, oh, they're not playing on a click. And the beat 
the you know the BPM has changed like five six throughout the entire song because oh human. yeah big big time and I've had some musicians tell me I'm hard to play with on recordings because on my music I don't use a click track specifically yeah and I like it because my the flow of the song it just has this weird kind of push pull like yeah. ebb and flow to it and. For for a long time, I wasn't using a tuner. I was just tuning by ear, and I wait what? Tune. <laughs> yeah, I was tuning by ear, and <laughs> my tunings were in tune but sharp. Yeah, sure. Like they were just a hair sharp. <laughs> and I remember Luke Snyder, the pedal steel player who played on Letting Go. He sent back the track, and he was like, "Yeah, I was having to play in between the lines to like match up with you because you were you were sharp." And I was like, "Great," but I mean, <laughs> I think it gives it gives my album a unique sound. I like the ebb and the flow. And I mean, this is obviously like that famous video where they talked about Jay Dilla's beat making on the, the NPC that instead of quantizing the beats, which like snaps them into place. Yeah. He's doing the natural, like, uh, like with the buttons hitting the beats and you're not going to be perfectly in time. Cause that's like human timing, pressing buttons, but it, the beats aren't quantized. And that's why his beats sound really good is they have the feel of a live drummer with a natural flow because it's not quantized, which that can make beats sound really stuffy when they're quantized and snapped into place because you always know where the beat's going to land. Yeah. I mean, that's a dead serious. Like that's something where, especially now, cause like I, you know, if someone's going to DM me after this, but like I, I will sit and listen to music now instead of watching movies or something like mm-hmm. I, I, I got a nice deck. I'll sit and I'll listen to a record start to finish. And Hearing the the human mistakes and errors and false starts, you know, whether it's old Dylan tapes or, you know, like it makes me feel like more connected to the art because we as humans, I'm not trying to get all whatever, like we're, we make mistakes. Like we, we, we can't be perfect. We were never made perfect. Right. So it's just yeah. like hearing the the errors you know not that like that's what i look for but just like so much of the other things it's like it's too perfect especially hearing space in a room like i was listening to one of your recordings on my nicer headphones and i'm like oh like this wasn't just like one mic on a guitar like there's some there's some room energy here or maybe it just wasn't heavily compressed or what but i mean it's it's it feels much more intimate yeah and that's probably the goal is just i kind of want it to feel like you're inside of the guitar yeah and you can hear my sh- my fingers going against the string so you hear a little bit of zh- kind of sound yeah yeah exactly. and i know that's like a touchy thing with some people because i know i like i had i used to have comments from people saying i don't like the string noise and it's just like okay well i'm not going to change that Fuck off. Like, yeah it's just sorry like, it's just, that's me saying yeah <laughs> it's just like that's how i play um but I mean, I get what you're saying about the, the the human element in music. I mean, it's weird because I was listening back to the Todd Rundgren song, Hello, It's Me. Mm-hmm. And there's two versions of that song on streaming. There's the one that immediately goes right into the song. Yeah. And then there's the one on the album where it has these three like false starts that you hear Todd talking is like one, two. And it's like, bing, bing, like the organ. And it stops. Like you keep thinking the song's about to start. And he's like, one, two, ding, ding, stop. And he's like, a one, two, one, two, three. And then it comes in and it sounds incredible. And I don't know why the version with the false starts makes it sound so much better than the one that had those removed. And I think it's because it makes you realize how damn good this song sounds. Like, <laughs> oh shit, these are guys in the room together 
all playing at the same time and there's like room for error. But once they all come in, you're like, this is the best music has ever sounded. Like this is the pinnacle of what music can sound like when Hello, It's Me all comes in after those false starts. And you realize, oh, wow, they these guys know what they're doing. Yeah, like when you're recording your stuff, are you, you know, do you set yourself like a track limit? Are you only using tape or is it like, you know, because it's, I, I joke about this and I've said this before, like for me, some of the best music was like in the 70s ever, like the best recorded music they had, you know, and I think the limit at that time was like Dark Side of the Moon was made on 16 tracks, right? Yeah. Like that's, you know, we don't need 10,000 tracks for a song or 200 tracks for something like that. And I love you know, the new, some of the new recordings and like the new national stuff has got a gajillion tracks on it and it's good. But like the limits, I feel like are an interesting way to make art. Oh yeah. Big time. And I mean, in terms of me being in the studio, like the limits I impose on myself is for one, I don't need more than 16 tracks. Like I don't have a ton of tracks just because the kind of music I make Mm -hmm. with solo guitar music. It's just kind of, if I'm doing overdubs, it's going to be like some synthesizers, a bass, maybe some field recording. So there's not a whole lot of ingredients going on. The only rules I kind of impose on myself in the studio is most of the time with these good songs, I record the acoustic guitar piece live as a single tape. Oh my God. I try not to do any comping on them. I think of this new record, which was my most technical record I've ever made. Um, I think there's two comps on the whole record. On Letting Go, there was one. Wow. And actually, I don't even think it was a comp on Letting Go. I just removed a part from a song. So it wasn't a comp. On this new record, there's two. And then when I'm recording, when I'm in the studio in front of the mics, if I have a solo guitar piece I'm going to play, I allow myself only three takes. If I can't get it right in three takes, I have to quit the song for the day and move on. I can't, I can't do more than three takes because it will get worse, which is weird because my friend Mason Lindahl, who's an amazing guitar player, I told him that. And he was like, really? He's like, I think on some of my songs in my new one, I was doing 97, 98 takes. I was like, really? He was like, yeah, I have to do just a ton of them. That's how they get good. And I was like, I could not imagine doing 97 takes of a solo guitar song. That would Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, where did the three take limit come from? It's just if 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 I can't nail out for the three takes, you're wasting your time. It's going to get worse. Like, just give up, like move on to something else. Um, It's just not clicking if you can't like get it after three takes. So and when I did this newest record, I had seven solo acoustic guitar pieces. Yeah, I went in the studio and on first day, we started at eight in the morning and finished at six. And I recorded every single solo guitar piece. In that first day. And I got the idea because Leo <laughs> Kotke recorded six and 12 string guitar, um, his 1969 album that's widely considered to be his best work. He claimed he recorded that that was done in four hours. Mm. He said he went to the studio. He's like, they set up the mics. I sat in front of the mics and I played everything I knew. And that was it. And I'm like, <laughs> that, that's how you make a guitar record is just like practice the shit out of the songs, get yeah. them really good, sit in front of the mic. And then be able to play them. That's why before I went to the studio, I practiced every day for four hours, three, four hours every single day. Because I knew once I get in the studio, I have to be playing well or else I'm going to be screwed because I have to get this record done. And if I'm not able to play, there's no record. Like there's no one can fill in the blanks on that, you know? Yeah. I mean, but just for listeners and stuff, like that's the polar opposite mindset of what many musicians have when they go in the studio. Because studio time, one, is cheap. Uh, and in most cases you can, you can just do stuff at home. 
I mean, and yeah. so it was only earlier, earlier eras of recording where you didn't go unless you were perfect. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that's, that's super interesting that like, that's your, cause I, yeah, I mean, just so many people, you know, they're, they're more focused on go, go to the studio. Cause you can, you can sit there all day and you can cook versus you're like, I, you know, you're locked before you're entering the door. Yeah, because my biggest thing is I'm always very, I'm an easily distracted person. So I have to be hyper, hyper focused to get something done. Mm -hmm. So I'm actually not a big fan of like crazy studio experimentation because I feel like I can get really lost in the, oh, let's add a Mellotron to this. Well, let's run a phaser through the Mellotron. Let's run like the Mellotron. Like, I'm like, dear God, like we could get like lost for hours and this one overdub. It's just like, I, I really, really have to maintain focus when I'm making a record um, so I can ensure it gets done just because the way I work, I'm just like all over the place, really distracted. So I really have to, if I'm zoned in, I have to stay zoned in. And if someone starts getting off track with like an overdub, I'm like, no, 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 we can't do that. Like, oh, shit. We, can't, we can't do that right now. Like that's gonna, we're gonna lose, I'm gonna lose the momentum if we do that. So luckily, that's why I track all guitar, acoustic guitar parts first day so it allowed us to have room to do overdubs without me freaking out about getting stuff done because if i would have done track by track recording the acoustic guitar then adding overdubs to that track it probably would have taken me one week per song oh man if we, if we would have done it that way and that just was not possible so i tracked the whole album one day in terms of the core compositions um and i told the the producer trayer i jokingly said the way we're going to make this album is we're making two different records. The first record we have to make is a 100% solo guitar record. That's the first record. Then the second record is the solo acoustic guitar record with the overdubs. So we had to make two records to make one good record. And that's the template. If you can make the first 100% solo guitar record and it could stand on its own as a perfect solo guitar record, mm-hmm. then you're great. Then do the overdubs, you know? So that's that was my ideas. We make two records to make one record. Where where did that idea come from? Well, like I said, back to the Leo Kaki thing. That's how we made six and twelve string guitar, and okay. that's a great record. But I didn't want to release a one hundred percent solo of his guitar record like Leo Kaki's. I did want to have ambience and synthesizer and bass to fill it yeah. out. But if you can make the album first like the Leo Kaki record, like treat it as if. Treat it like this is what's going to be released. If this had to be released, would you be okay with it? That's mm. the foundation I want to build on. Is like if I wasn't allowed to do overdubs, would I put my name on it? And the answer was yes. I felt confident in those solo guitar recordings that I would have released those completely dry acoustic guitar if I had to. But that wasn't the record I was trying to make. But that's the thing. If you view it from the perspective of making two different records, you will make a really good record, you know? But it's like the idea of like um, Nick Drake's Pink Moon, mm-hmm. you know? That's almost the same idea of like, if Nick Drake wanted to, the Pink Moon could have been a full-blown orchestral record if yeah. he wanted to. He could have started with Pink Moon the way it was and then gone on a full orchestral. Luckily, he didn't because it wouldn't have worked for that album. And it's perfect the way it is. Um you know, compared to his previous records that do have strings and John Cale producing and all of those things. Yeah. Um, but I think that's a fun way to make records is like, if you can make a really good stripped down record first, then add on to it. You know, it doesn't always work. I mean, Bruce Springsteen said with Nebraska, he tried to do the demos, then do it with the E street band. And he was yep. like, this isn't working. So sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes you need to stick with the first version, but that's why it's good. It's almost album insurance because if you make the first, 
version. That's the, the, the minimalist version. And it sounds good. And then you move on to the second version and it doesn't click. Cool. You have a, you have an album, you know, all ready to go, but you can't move backwards. It's a lot harder to do the extravagant orchestral album first and then work your way back to minimalism. It's a lot, it's a lot harder to do it that way. Yeah. I mean, that's, this is like, it's, this is making me thinking of uh, like Beatles stuff where, yeah. you know, like how they would demo and then George Martin coming in and just being like, let's, let's, let's get nuts in here. For uh, sure. And I mean, I, but I feel like that speaks to like a Rick Rubin, who is the king of people having like really extravagant things. <laughs> and then yeah. he comes in and like, pull, so Rick Rubin might be like one of the few people who can like go remove, like go from extravagant to stripped down he's like the only one who's like really good at reducing maximalist to minimalist and i mean i always found his work on kanye west Jesus really interesting because he stripped that down two weeks before it was released and made a true minimalist maximalist masterpiece um so i find that that method of producing a record really interesting but i don't recommend doing it because that yeah. seems kind of iffy to start off maximalist and then have someone strip it down for you I do want to talk about the uh, the vibe, the clothes here. So you, you've you've really like nailed this uh, this like seventies suit with like the the hats and stuff. Where where did this come from? Well, I don't know. I started experimenting with like kind of fashion related stuff um, when I was doing those goofy photos. I would put together like me and my wife would take these photos. Where it's like the idea was trying to come up with like stuff that looks high fashion, but dumb as hell is like the idea it needs to look fashionable but also really stupid so we were experimenting with a lot of stuff like that finding thrift store clothes borrowing borrowing clothes from like theaters my wife was working at and just assembling these really stupid outfits and then it got to the point where like i started trolling fashion brands because like i made fake posts claiming i was working with gucci then i made a fake post claiming gucci was suing me for copyright infringement yeah. And then that's what's weird is from those fake posts, uh, Gucci reached out to me. And I ended yeah, up I was going to say, you you walked the, the runway for Gucci. <laughs> yeah, by joking that they were suing me. You know? <laughs> so that, that worked out really weird. You know, definitely was not something I expected to happen. <laughs> with with the suits, like, do you, you know, do you like ever get stuff made for you? Or is no. it literally, I mean, because I guess you're probably a pretty good off the rack fit. Well, yeah, I mean, it's all stuff I find at thrift stores and things like that. But it's like I'm a smaller person. So it's like definitely some suits like a tan Western suit I have is like a 70s women's suit. It's very small because like most like men's stuff is just absolutely huge on me. But then again, I've worn like men's XXL jackets where I've put a uh, curtain rod in the shoulders type of thing. (laughs) Almost like the Carol Burnett, like like curtain bit with the curtain rod on the shoulders. But I put it like in the jacket to have these super wide shoulders so it looks like talking head style david bernie style kind of thing but it's just like weird experimenting i'm just like constantly experimenting with goofy stuff i have no history in fashion i don't know really anything about fashion at all i just welcome to the show no one does i mean that you just have the opinion and therefore you know (laughs) yeah i just i just pretend like i know what i'm doing and then um have fun with it so like anything i do it's just constant experimentation and trying things that I have no experience in and just seeing what happens. Does it ever uh, mess with you now that like, I feel like more and more people across the U.S. are really trying to jock the whole, I'm going to wear cowboy boots now and I'm going to wear flared jeans and, I'm, and I've been wearing Wranglers and, and Western shirts. And like, do you, do you, does that ever mess with you or do you, how do you feel about that? No, I really can't gatekeep 
cowboy western stuff. And the reason why is I'm from Amarillo, Texas, born and raised here. I've only lived in Texas. But to give you an example of why I can't gatekeep that stuff is one time I was wearing a King Ropes hat, which is a rope brand, lasso brand. Mm-hmm. And I was wearing an Amarillo and this old cowboy guy walks up to me and he's like, are you a team roper? Like, like calling me out for wearing it like I wasn't legit. And the funny thing is, it's like, it's right. This old guy, it was almost identical to how skaters call people out for wearing thrasher. I was like, <laughs> wow, like these old cowboys are like skaters. Like they're like rep checking you and your gear. Like, do you actually do that? So obviously I can't really call people out for wearing cowboy hats because me, if I, I don't wear cowboy hats out in Amarillo because I would look like a poser. Like, like I can't wear a cowboy hat here. <laughs> like you would, I don't wear cowboy hats out anywhere, but I especially would not wear one in Amarillo. So I'm not going to call people out because like, I'm not authentic here wearing a cowboy hat. So it's like, I can't gatekeep people on that when I'm not even authentic. Well, the funny thing is, though, I think externally, you are the representation for a lot of young people of like the guy who is running his hometown and embodying the culture of his hometown and and selling, you know, communicating and, and displaying that culture for everyone else. I mean... Yeah, I play on it. I mean, I definitely yeah. play on cowboy Western culture, but warp it through comedy. But it's like, you know, there's country dudes like Coulter Wall, which that guy's Canadian, but so like he works on a ranch. He's an actual cowboy. So it's like if I were to meet Coulter Wall and be wearing a cowboy hat, I'd feel like the biggest tool in the (laughs) world if I met him. It was like, howdy. And this guy just glares at me like, oh, okay, You know, so it's like I'm definitely not authentic in that way. I'm not Western. I'm not cowboy. But I am from Texas. Uh, I mean, I love like I. I like a lot of the imagery from Texas, but I always have to be vocal and acknowledge that's just like, you know, do whatever you want. I'm not not authentic. And technically speaking, very few people are actually authentic. You know, it's just like like, you know, yeah. I can, we can't be cowboys. You know, there's, just, <laughs> there's there's no way it's just not possible. Yeah. It's I feel like a bunch of people started watching Yellowstone and all of a sudden like it's boots and hats and yeah and they're just they're all in it. Like even people in my neighborhood and I live in an area of I'm in St. Louis, Missouri now and you have people here who are commuting to the big city. Like I I was talking to this guy at a coffee shop and he's like, "Oh yeah, I'm from Hannibal uh in Missouri." And he's like, "You know, I was really looking for a change of scenery and I wanted to move to like, you know, the city." And I was like, "Oh, and in my head I'm like, "Oh, New York." I was like, "So how long did you live in New York?" And he's like, "No, no, no, St. Louis. This is the city for me." And I'm like, "Oh shit." And he's like, "Yeah, like I live, you know, grew up on a farm, lives on a ranch, and I'm I'm always like interested by like you know, the people that are wearing this stuff for utilitarian reasons. And then you have all the like the fashion people now where it's like people want nudie suits and cowboy boots. And (laughs) well, that's (laughs) the only thing I'll say. People should not wear nudie suits. We need to end it like end nudie suits. Like, don't do that. Like, that's the worst. Like when I see people wearing nudie suits, that's just a no go. Wait, and why? Uh, Because I mean, it's just like you're like, that's the one thing that I feel like needs to be gate kept. Like, (laughs) Like, I think it's funny because there's that Andy Samberg movie, Palm Springs. Yeah. And I love in that movie, which it's like a bunch of hipster people at a wedding in Palm Springs. And there's a guy wearing a nudie suit who like (laughs) he's the only guy that has Coke on him. And I love that they wrote that that's the guy who does Coke is the guy in the nudie suit. I'm like, that's the people who wear nudie suits. Like, like it's just like if you like if you wear a nudie suit, you are a nerd. Like you are an absolute (laughs) nerd and i feel like if somebody wears a nudie suit 
bully them. Like they <laughs> like, could you imagine if I walked out with a nudie suit and people were just pointing at them, just laughing? Like, like what is that? Like, what are you doing? You know, I like that's the one thing I'll say. Um, unless it's like something really funny, um, you you will never see me in a nudie suit. I'm just throwing that out there. Oh, I'm being a hater about this, like an absolute hater. But but that that is kind of a pet peeve of like nudie suits. That that kind of sketches me out. I mean, strong opinions. There you go. That's yeah. that's what that's what gives fashion sense. Um, <laughs> with you know, as we were talking, a lot of the stuff you've been referencing are all around like the seventies. Mm-hmm. What what's like the daily media diet, or like what were the stuff that you've been listening to or watching while you're making this record? So in terms of like what I listen to while making a record, what I listen to before making a record is usually kind of weird because I mean, when I did letting go, I was very honest that like most of what I was listening to was rap, like Earl sweatshirt. It wasn't really stuff. It's great, like, great rap. Yeah. It wasn't really stuff like what I'm making. I just trying to like listen to stuff that inspires me artistically outside mm-hmm. of what I do. And I mean, I'm not like a huge TV watcher, but I mean like recently something I've been watching a ton is I've been watching little house on the prairie again. Um, no, it's a weird show. People need to go back and watch that show. Cause there's some shows like the Waltons that are corny. Like I don't tell people go watch the Waltons for the seventies. Mm-hmm. Cause that show is very earnest and sappy and corny. Little house on the prairie is earnest, sappy and corny, but it's also unhinged. Like <laughs> nothing about that show makes sense. Like that is a show where I think the writer's room was filled with people doing cocaine where they're laughing to each other. Like, what if this episode, the mom gets cut <laughs> by a rusty nail while the kids are on a, a church retreat and she starts hallucinating? <laughs> and that's an episode. That's a real episode in the show. Then there's another episode where it's just like, what if someone in a clown mask comes into town and starts raping people and no one figures out who what the rapist clown was? Wait, that's, that's an, an episode. episode. That's oh an episode God. where there's a rapist clown. And it's like, why is this in Little House on the Prairie? <laughs> There's an episode where the kid Albert gets addicted to morphine and becomes a junkie. And oh it's like a God. depressing episode. It's not lighthearted. It is soul crushingly grim. And you're like, OK, the last episode was about y'all going on a picnic and having to win a, a tug of war match. And then the next episode, Albert's on morphine and is going through withdrawals. Wow. You can't like there's nothing like that. So I watch a lot of Little House on the Prairie because it is very, <laughs> very, very strange. Very I just wish the Moody Blues would have soundtracked Little House on the Prairie. That would have made the best show ever made. Easily. Oh my god, I fucking love the Moody Blues. Could you imagine Little House on the Prairie with Mellotrons and DX7s background? and but stuff? There, there are some Moog style synths that pop up on Little House on the Prairie in the score. There, there is some weird synthesizer stuff that pops up from time to time, which is oh cool. man, I I I can't believe I'm going to say this. I feel like I got to revisit Little House on the Prairie. Where are you watching this on? What is it it's, on? It is on the streaming service Peacock that has all of the seasons. Oh, I'm yeah, borrowing I, the I'm borrowing the login from somebody. I don't even pay for that stuff. I love I love that. With the, that's like the new thing that everyone will say. Like if you're watching a, a streaming network, that might be like a little mainstream. People are like, well, I, I don't even have the login. It's not mine. So. I'm hold- it's, it's, it's like, not mine. It's like don't judge. I'm holding it for a friend, kind of deal when you're get, p- gatekeeping on streaming. But but <laughs> but yeah, go watch Little House on the Prairie. I recommend everyone go watch it. It is highly entertaining, very strange, and uh, I think a lot of people will realize it's it's an enjoyable show. I think it needs to be considered outsider media. Wow, that's that's a hell of a take. Yeah, I, you could I watch did... it next to like Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. 
You can watch it in the same way. I did also. I I used to love Dr. Quinn. Oh, um, uh, it, it, that was. I mean, this is when I was like much younger. But yeah. you know, because I we we didn't have cable. We didn't have. We had the library, which is where you could go and check out stuff. And funny enough, most of the things that you could check out at our local library was like Faulty Towers. And, you know, a lot of this like British stuff or, or even like Monty Python, which I think yeah. was really interesting. You know, they would let a eight year old kid check out Life of Brian, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which if anyone's seen it, it's probably not something you'd want an eight year old to watch. Yeah. But I remember like, you know, you could just go and do that. And uh, like the, the programming for kids was just like, I don't know, whatever stuff that wasn't on the air anymore. But yeah, there's lots of good stuff in there. I grew up homeschooled and my dad was a preacher, um, never like didn't do public school at all. And also it was a similar thing of like no cable TV, um, just the library and a lot of stuff like the Waltons and Little House on the Prairie. And uh, the library was like a huge resource for me. Because like you said, I remember being like 12 and renting a documentary on like Dogtown Z Boys, like (laughs) documentary and had like nudity in it and like very foul language and drug use. And I was like, 12 kind of looking over my shoulder like um does anyone know i'm watching this you know i think people just think the library just only has good like pleasant nice contents like no they had some pretty wild stuff yeah yeah for sure i'd see okay i knew you were preacher's kid i was like man i was like i can get in the same vibe that this guy's got the because you got the references but you all your things are still wholesome and I think that yeah. is one of the most like, you know, incredible things about all, all this stuff is like, it's not like just being weird. I mean, there's yeah. there's deep love and affinity for your roots and your connections. And I, I don't know, I feel like that's a very common thing with with PKs. Um, yeah, yeah. Are you are you religious? Yeah. Nice. How's that working out? How's that, work, how's that working out for you? <laughs> it's good. I'm, I'm miserable. So it's working out good. <laughs> I'm kidding. No, it's like I was raised... Christian, my dad was a, a preacher, and not gonna lie, I had some very, very weird years where I, I was very frustrated by that whole thing. I didn't like being homeschooled. It was, it was, I don't know. And my dad was a preacher at a truck stop too, like at a chapel at a truck stop. And the chapel was an eighteen-wheeler trailer that had been converted into a chapel with like laminated floors and a podium. So we're not talking normal preacher's kid. This isn't like typical. So I uh, was around, you know, truckers and drug addicts and schizophrenics and weird people like that. So I saw a lot of strange stuff. Wow. Yeah, yeah I, I, my dad was, you know, because a lot of people, it's like, oh, your dad was a preacher. People are like, oh, are you, you know, very anti-church or anti, you know, whatever it is, like assuming that there was, and in a weird way, like my parents did not impose or force any form of religion on me. And I remember calling my dad when I was in New York and telling him that I was, uh, that I was going to be a Buddhist. Uh-huh. And he was like, cool, dude. Oh, wow. And That's I was a- like, uh, wait, like, is that, is that going to bother you? And he's like, no, he's like, you just need to find some sort of faith or something to cling to. Like he would always yeah. talk about that. He's like, you need to, you know, he's like, whether it's music or he's like, you need a community. He's like, yeah. you know, you, it, I don't care if you're into Jesus or into, buddha or into whatever he's like Ron Hubbard. Need- yeah or Ron- <laughs> whatever <laughs> funny enough i imagine that was probably one of the ones he might have had an issue with but like yeah. you know he was just like you just need to have some sort of like faith in something or some sort of connection because otherwise you're going to be wandering around not knowing who you are and you're going to try to make an identity of of garbage Interesting. and i was like well joke's on you i'm already halfway there yeah. but 
<laughs> I'm already wearing nudie suits. Yeah, I was like, Dan, look, I'm wearing nudies. <laughs> Dude, my religion is nudie suits and cocaine. That sounds like a t-shirt you would see on Instagram, like one of those actual shirts on a spam account. Gosh, oh, that's brutal. That's amazing. So did you get into you know music stuff through that? Like, I mean, because I, I – We'll go back now and listen to like some old gospel music, but also like 80s Christian music sometimes and being like, sometimes there's some really good stuff in here, whether it's like Petra or some like Bizarro stuff. I don't know. I didn't really listen to Christian music a lot. Like my my introduction to music was was not through Christian music. And I say luckily because um, to be frank, most white Christian music is awful. I mean, I wholeheartedly agree. You're White good. Christian music is really bad. I mean, you can go back and listen to like r- black religious music from the 20s, 30s, 40s. And obviously it's better than any music ever made. I mean, yeah. y- you don't have to be a Christian to realize like how insanely good that kind of music is. But I ended up getting into music because when I was like 10, 11, my mom was playing stuff in the car like Santana, like like 60, 70 Santana. And that's what made me want to play guitar was because of Santana. And then I got into Eric Clapton, Stevie Ray Vaughan, all of that stuff when you're 10, 11, 12. Um, and then from there, it just slowly started warping. Um, it, it just got weirder and weirder and weirder. Cause I mean, it's like, I could probably say it now, like in a really fast way, the way the pipeline works is you start with Santana then you go to Eric Clapton, then you go to Stevie Ray Vaughan. And then you you find Pink Floyd, and then from Pink Floyd you find Tangerine Dream, then you find King Crimson, then you find Throbbing Gristle, and then you find Stockhausen, and then you find Can. Like that's the pipeline of step by step of like you start with Santana and then you get to Stockhausen. Like if you, but Zappa has to be in there. I mean, I left him out because that's actually really important because it probably needs to be like Santana, Clapton, and then you get you find Zappa, and then from there all bets are off, and then it gets really crazy. But prog nope. rock is actually before Zappa. Is you know. Beefheart in there? Yeah, that's later down the timeline. But prog okay. rock for me is when everything got weird. Like the two bands that changed everything were Genesis and then Ry Cooter. Those were the two people that just made things change where I wasn't really into like blues guitar anymore. Because Ry Cooter played with the slide. So I yeah. started playing with the slide. And then when I was 14, I got a Genesis trick of the, or no, it was Nursery Crime, one of their prog CDs. And then that's how I really started getting into weird music. Because I started really following that path of, well, if you go to Genesis Defender Graph Generator and then you keep going and keep going and keep going, you end up on Henry Cowell and like really, really weird, like Prague starts disintegrating and then you're on This Heat. Because This Heat's an interesting band because Charles Hayward is legitimately one of the few people that has a connection between the Prague world and the punk, post-punk world. Because yeah. Charles Hayward played drums in bands like Gong. Like he played in Gong. Wow, I didn't know that. Shit. Yeah, like he played during the like uh, the Gong Jazz Fusion years. Uh-huh. Um, he played in a band called Quiet Sun that I think had one of the members of Roxy Music. That's a straight up prog band. Like Charles Hayward started up started out in straight up prog. So when you hear the first This Heat album, it opens with Horizontal Hold, which sounds like like thrash metal. It's so gnarly. And then it cuts to this like weird Frank Zappa mothers of invention sounding thing. <laughs> and then you remember, oh, Charles Hayward started off relatively proggy and then got like played in crass. Like Charles Hayward filled in in crass, which is crazy. Like Charles Hayward played in prog bands crass and then did this heat, which is unreal. So are, where are you listening to some of this music? If, if someone like if someone else wants to listen to this, a lot of these things that you mentioned are not on like streaming services. 
So the yeah. way the way I found stuff is luckily I was like at the very end of the blog era when I was in high school. So I was going to the library, renting weird CDs like Miles Davis, Davis at the Fillmore East. That was the kind of CDs I was renting. But mm-hmm. then I finally was a lot like allowed on the Internet at 15 years old. I found a website called Mutant Sounds Blogspot. That was a very yeah. unhinged blog that was like today the album is this nurse with wound list album of like two guys banging two by fours together and screaming. Like that was the zone. And I got really into that. I was really into the deep, craziest, weirdest stuff. But I remember finding bands like Perubu and like really weird post-punky type bands. And then John Fahey came in and Stockhausen. And I was like really into like Fred Frith and making noise with the guitar. So blogs, YouTube. Um, yeah, there's a lot of good stuff on YouTube. Yeah. Wise. Like yeah. I, I was like really deep into that kind of stuff. And I was just obsessed with bands like Faust, like that stuff just melted, like truly like Faust still to this day. I listen back to Faust. I'm like, wow, it's still that weird. Like, it's not like I got older and was like, oh, I thought Dark Side of the Moon was so gnarly when I was 14. But like with Faust, you go back to Faust and you're like, holy shit, this is gnarly music. <laughs> like this is unhinged, crazy music. And I'm so glad I found it when I did because it like. I would not be the kind of person I am now if it wasn't for those kind of records. But there's just certain records in my mind that stick out to me, like Perubu's Dub Housing. I remember finding that album the week I found the Miles Davis at the Fillmore East. Mm-hmm. And I, for some reason, Dub Housing by Perubu and that Miles Davis live record, I linked together because I was listening to them at the same time. And they were both so heavy. I was like, this is the heaviest music ever made. And still is just, wow. So it's just absolutely unhinged, crazy crazy music i feel like you got to do some sort of like music appreciation course because a lot of the stuff you mentioned first off is like a murderer's row of some of the greatest underappreciated if you know you know musicians ever outside of people like miles davis you know um because a lot of people don't were like their 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 uh awareness of like frank zappa is just that there was a kid named moon unit right but like not actually understanding some of the music and and like recording and songwriting I don't know, boundary pushing. I don't, I don't, I, I've, I stumbled to find the right words to actually describe how evolutionary a lot of this stuff was. For um, real. Yeah. I mean, yeah. like the Mothers of Invention rolling up for the money album. Yep. And this is another hot take, but Zappa started sucking when he started playing with other technically comp, like, like competent musicians. I think the Mothers <laughs> of Invention worked because you could, you almost got the vibe that some of these guys were absolute idiots. Like he was working with dudes who were almost seemed like total, like, like, very drugged out, tripped out freaks. And sure, I think sure. that worked really well for Zappa because hot take Zappa after like 1970 starts to just turn into trash, like bad prog, bad jazz fusion. I don't yeah. want to hear a xylophone. I don't want to hear like it. It just, it, it turns really bad where if you hear we're only in it for the money, it has these like Stockhausen esque tape loop pieces where voices are coming in and out. It's truly schizophrenic music. And it, it's truly still to stay. If you listen to We're Only In It For The Money, groundbreaking. It's one of the best things you will ever hear in your life, music-wise. No one will make a better album than that. No one in the past 20 years has made a better album than We're Only In It For The Money. Show me one person that has. There's not. Oh, man. There's not a, there's not a better album than that. No one's done anything like that. No one's been that innovative in music in, in the past 20 years like We're Only In It For The Money. Uh, so I was going to say like one of the, I mean, we're, we're going to start to wrap in a minute. And one of the things I wanted to ask you is like, what are the, 
three albums that you would recommend to everyone listen to? And it sounds like We're Only In It For The Money is up there. I mean, if I had to choose three right now off the top of my head, We're Only In It For The Money, Mothers Of Invention, Astro Weeks, Van Morrison, Yellow Princess, John Fahey. Those are the three. Man, uh, first off, it's funny that you, I'm, I'm going to, I want to intentionally leave this in. Amar's my editor. Like when I usually ask people this question, sometimes it takes 10 minutes because they have, they're like, well, and so my editor will clean up the amount of time it takes, you know, someone to figure this out. And I want to say the <laughs> fact that you were like, boom, boom, boom. <laughs> yeah. And I have to say my answers like will probably change 15 minutes from now. There's probably sure. <laughs> 15 groups of three I could have picked. But I am fully comfortable choosing those three as like, eh, I'm cool with that being the primer to me, the everything. Like, I'm, I'm content with saying those three records and leaving it at that. Uh, so all of this being said, when does the like the prog rock album come out for you? Because it's interesting that like your knowledge of this is so vast. It's so incredible. You know all your shit. But the music that you make, which is beautiful, is the most stripped down bare bones you know, I don't know. Do you, do you have any intention to do any sort of like heavy, crazy prog stuff? I would love to. One day I want to make a Mike Oldfield style album because Mike Oldfield's Oma Dawn was like really big for me back then. And that has like so many overdubs. And the funny story on the album is he, he literally had to restart the entire album because he put so many overdubs on the tape. It just, it just fell apart and destroyed <laughs> the record. And he had to remake it because he put so many overdubs on that record. But I want to make a Mike Oldfield style, like Two Your Bells, Oma Dawn, Frog Rock Epic one day. I would love to. That's that's the goal. That is the end goal. Okay, damn. Well, I feel like that's a good place to wrap. Yeah. Oh, Hayden, yeah. thank you. Thank you so much for doing this. I, I congrats on the, on the album. Thank you. Um, I'll put a link to it in the show notes and everything for everyone else. But like, this was a ton of fun. Oh, yeah. But it was great to meet you. Take yeah, care. great to meet you. Yeah, thank you so much. This was a blast. Thanks, man. Okay, folks, that's it. Special thanks to Hayden Pedigo. His album, The Happiest Times I Ever Ignored, is streaming everywhere. Go buy his LP off of Bandcamp. See him on tour with Jenny Lewis this summer. You've been listening to Blamo. Our music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. We're edited by Amar Lal, and we're produced by Blamo Media. If you want to dig deeper, you can join us on Patreon, where we have exclusive episodes, shows, and our amazing, incredible Slack community. All right, folks, have a great week.